Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the end of term wonky show. We've got research on student expectations in September. There's a new bill in Wales, some immigration news, higher technical reforms. Michelle Donnellan has been at the select committee. And ding dong, merrily on high, DK's been celebrating NSSmus. It's all coming up. Yeah, but like, university isn't like a bag of monster munch. Yeah? I mean, it's it's um, it's it's a little bit more complicated as a kind of experience. And I think, you know, the, the, variable, <laughs> the variable nature of... Um, of people's experience means that Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Jim Dickinson and here for our Bring In A Board Game end of term special. As usual, we have three brilliant guests. In Oxfordshire, Francis Corner is warden, that's Vice-Chancellor to you and me, at Goldsmiths University of London. Francis, your highlight of the week, please. Absolutely. Well, um, almost a year ago, we declared a Green New Deal at Goldsmiths after a passionate campaign by staff and students. And this week we have launched our Plan 25, which is a commitment to being carbon neutral by, as you can guess, 2025. Fantastic. And in Nottingham, Alex Favier is Director of Global and Political Affairs at the University of Nottingham. Alex, your highlight of the week, please. I think after only about 1,400 drafts and 400 hours of consultation, um, we've, we've, we've finished the, the first draft of the, uh, the Universities for Nottingham Civic Agreement. So it's going out to our, our partners to check that they're, uh, they're finally okay with it. So um, that's been a, about two years' worth of work. Um, hopefully nearly done. Great news. And in York, David Kernahan is an associate editor here at Wonky. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Well, this week on Wednesday, I sent my last uh, daily briefing of the term. And that's an important moment in the life of Wonky because it means we move into our summer mode, which means we don't have to get up at half past six every morning. (laughs) Yeah, quarter to seven instead. Good. So, yes, we start this week with student expectations. This week at Wonky, we've published new research undertaken with Pearson, exploring nearly three and a half thousand students' experiences of learning in lockdown and their expectations for the coming academic year. Francis, what does this tell us? I think this is an excellent bit of work. I mean, there's been so much going on at the moment about what are people's expectations of universities in the context of COVID and the context of AUGA and all of those sorts of things. So to actually have this really thoughtful bit of research, I think is a real important pointer for us all. It obviously highlights, you know, for me, one of the most important uh, important issues, which is around 49% of these students are less confident about how they're going to move forward. And I think this issue about confidence for this generation of of whether they're pupils at schools or, or at university, this issue is something we're really going to have to think about. 
The other thing I thought was particularly important is in thinking about the fact that they're coming into um, this sort of blended learning, online delivery, the thing that they're most concerned about uh, is 59% of them want to make sure there is really high quality online teaching. They don't want the same tired old PowerPoints or pre-recorded lectures. They really want the opportunity to ask questions. They want to feel that there is a, a real sort of human interaction. I, I think for me, what goes to the heart of this bit of work, um, and I think it's something that we should all be attending to and thinking about as we prepare for September, is what is the university experience if the campus isn't a key part of that? And, and I think we have to find a way of translating what we do far more effectively. There are a couple of other key pointers, which I, I'm sure will get picked up in the conversation um, about people's attitude towards lifelong learning, retraining, and, and so on, but a really useful piece of work. Alex, one of the things I thought was interesting was that, you know, there's been lots of talk um, about um, the kind of broadcast bit of teaching, sort of lectures, large group lectures going online with, with smaller group stuff happening on campus. But this research suggests to us that uh, students want interaction online as well. Yeah, I think I think um, we've seen that. I think those academics at, at my university that have really invested in sort of getting down um, to the details with Microsoft Teams and, and sort of discovering all the little niche applications that exist have really started to see um, very positive results. And so we have a very kind of active um, community of practice um, as sort of people discover um, better and more practices um, that are engaging and that work. Um, I think we've been running a, a kind of major um, sort of uh, open day um, without borders essentially over the last kind of few weeks where um, hundreds of our academics have been doing mini lectures as part of um, an offer for, for prospective students um, but also members of the community and I think um, the more that people engage with the technology the natural curiosity and ingenuity of, of, of academics and teachers come out. So I, I suspect that we'll be continuing to learn about what works, what's good. And, um, you know, the, the one good thing is, is, is that feedback loops will be uh, incredibly small in terms of students letting us know if things are not <laughs> what they want them to be. DK, what stood out for you from the, uh, from the research? Well, this is an, um, I think we should start by saying this is a nice uh, survey, decent three and a half thousand sample size, but it only includes students from the 13 participating student union subscribers. Uh, so it, we can't really claim that it's completely representative of all students, although demographically it looks pretty useful. Uh, the thing that just always sticks out for me is that students are still very exercised about the idea that they should get a reduction in fees, financial compensation, etc., because of the situation this term. Now, uh, the temptation is to think that as we're planning for next term, we're thinking about a more comprehensive and more cohesive online offer, that, 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 that these concerns will start to go away. And it's also the idea that people think that students might suspect that, OK, this is an emergency situation, but we still see 47% say because of what happened this term, that they should get a reduction in fees and financial compensation. And there was um, a quote from um, a person at an SU that said, people are, n are nervous about navigating calls for refunds. Obviously, there's reasons uh, 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 not to ask for a refund as well, such as if, you're, if your university has to um, give back loads of money to students, you might not actually have a university anymore. 
but there's a they're also nervous about student uh, dissatisfaction if the refunds can't be secured. And I think this is uh, going to be an ar- argument that is going to expand and extend all the way through the summer. And something probably very interesting is going to have to happen in September, October. Francis, obviously, there was this moment in March, late March, where, you know, everyone kind of emergency pivoted to, you know, kind of doing their best online. And, you know, one of the theories I've read suggests that, you know, students are assuming that what they're going to experience in September, certainly returning students, will be broadly what they experienced in late March. But most universities have been working really hard to try and better the sort of, you know, emergency pivot situation. Mm I completely agree. And I think that, uh, as um, Alex was saying earlier, everybody's been working really hard to ensure that we're not using those um, old slide decks. And, And I think also looking at other ways of particularly for those practice subjects. So, for example, we've got theatre and performance, music, um, art at Goldsmiths. We've had a really exciting, um, the theatre and performance students put on an amazing festival, which you can still see online because they, they resorted to that, to filming and, and so on, to be able to make sure we um, we could do that. The music students did their version of Glastonbury. At the moment, um, we're running a sustainable enterprise festival, which again is allowing all sorts of online talks, events, discussions around the, the sort of concerns that people have have about the future. So I think it's that sort of knitting together of what a community is online, as well as this much more inventive and thoughtful consideration about what it is to teach, to learn, to do on. I mean, I've had performance staff saying, actually, some of the voice training online has actually been incredibly successful. So I'm I'm really hopeful that this is going to be part of our future. I mean, we talk about a new reality, not going back after COVID. We've demonstrated all sorts of opportunities with this. But I think it does, again, fundamentally question what it is to teach, how we teach and how we really support our learners at whatever stage of their careers they're, they're at. Alex, obviously, one of the things that we're really keen to do at this point is reassure both returning and prospective students that, um, you know, their experience will be good, you know, high quality uh, and so on and so on. Is there a danger, though, that we end up over promising Um, an experience that, you know, will still be in the middle of, you know, a a kind of global pandemic and, you know, potentially a, a, a fresh lockdown. Yeah, but like university isn't like a bag of monster munch. Yeah, I mean it's it's um it's it's a little bit more complicated as a kind of experience, and I think you know the the variability, <laughs> the variable nature of um of people's experience means that invariably we're going to be over promising for some people and under promising for others. Um, and I think you know this is the perpetual challenge of university marketing. Um, so on Monday we um, launched a, a kind of um, a set of web pages and a campaign um, which is to set out all of the different things that we think we can now say about September um, and you know it's essentially saying that this isn't the start of the academic year that any of us were expecting um, but actually it's still going to be worth it it's still going to be um a, 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 an opportunity to overcome adversary adversity and i think the the difficulty is going to be this kind of uh, in loco parentis point you know I, I think if students expect everything to be worked out and all the details to be finalized and they're going to be disappointed and it's actually going to take our students engaging and coming up with many of the solutions to you know what does a social life look like uh, between now and um christmas 
how are we going to work with our local community to make sure that their concerns are done? Our students are partners in there. They're not just customers. And I think that we've got to try and empower them to feel that they are, are, are an equal player in this. So, yeah, there is every danger that we are um, overselling. Um, but I think that that's no different from any other time uh, in any other university anywhere in the world. So, um, Can I just, one comment. I mean, it's, it's just that it does all raise questions about the digital divide. And I think there was a, a theme within that um, amongst, the, amongst the students uh, responding, their concerns about access to technology, the concerns about where they can, whether they're able to manage their work-life balance and so on. So I think, again, we're certainly having to think a lot about how are we going to support those students who don't have the right sort of access to, broad, you know, to, to Wi-Fi, broadband, whatever, um, or even the sort of technology that's needed. So I, I do feel that that alongside the question about fees and refunds is going to be a, a, a real running concern. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, my name is Raisa Ellis-Hack and I'm a widening participation officer at the University of Bristol with particular focus on the recruitment and engagement of black, Asian and minority ethnic students. My piece on Wonky is about the chance for positive change given the current context as we move to blended learning in HE. Whilst discussion has rightly centred on how WP students might fare in this new normal, this often gloomy point of view seems to come from commentators idolising their past HE experiences that are now somewhat removed from the current experience. There have been remarks suggesting that students from a WP background need to mix with quote-unquote posh students in order to experience upward social mobility. This deficit language is not helpful and whilst the interaction of individuals from different walks of life leads to lots of benefits, it is not a one-way street and AG should be about more than learning to play the game but actually changing the rules of the game. Whilst change in any form is scary, we must think about what's best for the next generation, not simply idolise our own experiences that came with less opportunity cost. Well-executed blending learning could benefit the very groups of students that universities have made promises to recruit. And don't forget, we'd love to have your contribution on the site. If you'd like to pitch us a piece, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com with your idea and we'll be in touch. Now, next up, the Welsh Government has published the Draft Tertiary Education and Research Bill for consultation. DK, what's been going on in Cardiff Bay? Well, it's a brand new regulator, Jim. That's what we're going to end up with. Um, they're going to call it the Commission for Tertiary Education and Research. I can exclusively reel the imp- um, approved acronym pronunciation is uh, CETA. Uh, CETA. So this is, um, it's kind of like if you imagine um, an office for students that's been blown up to absolutely mega size in that it still has responsibility for research funding it also has responsibility for FE and sixth forms as well. So as the name suggests, the whole post-compulsory uh, um, gamut is a part of its uh, regulatory ambit. Now, you might be thinking that sounds a bit like the Scottish Funding Council, but it's really not much like the Scottish Funding Council. It's a lot more like the OFS. It's using a lot of OFS tools. It's got a, um, a register which you can... Uh, register on at uh, different levels with conditions of registration. You've got to do your access and participation plans, although they call them access and maturity plans, and that's a condition of the, the higher fee limit. Um, and 
there is actually going to be a designated body for quality assurance like there is in England. And it even gets the same adorable powers of entry and inspection that Office for Students famously enjoys. So uh, coming as it does after SFC, which is probably the first of the modern style regulators, and OFS, which has uh, taken a particular ideological slant on the idea of um, higher education regulator, it could be said in some ways to have got the best of uh, both worlds. Uh, if you are familiar with other, other systems of regulation, reading this bill, which is currently out for consultation all the way through till December, so you've got plenty of time to do it and to send in your thoughts to the Welsh government. I don't think you even have to be Welsh to do so, so you'd, if you're just born in the summer. But um, it is um, it's surprising how closely they've cleaved to England where the situation in Wales is so different. There's not the government pressure to see a wave of um, new providers of independent private providers coming into the HE sector. Indeed, if you think uh, back to the tail end of the last decade, Wales was actively trying to reduce the number of providers that they had by uh, kind of merging them all together. So the idea of this registration system, it seems to tie into an idea of extreme market forces that just isn't really a thing in Wales. It's just, so, it's just not it's just not how they're doing it in Wales, is it? I mean, there's hardly any mention of market in the kind of documents or anything, you know, around it. There's not, but, e, but I mean, yet for some reason you have this huge market-enabling offer operation with all of the overheads that that entails. Francis, what did you spot in here? And that's a really good question. I mean, I was wondering whether, for me, it's just a sort of sense about governments, ministers wanting to have much greater control or oversight of what's going on in, in, in HE. I was quite interested, again, this sort of theme around um, technical, um, civic, the the idea that apprenticeships, you know, all of those trying to see things in the round, which is sort of a theme that keeps sort of reoccurring um, uh, in, in so many different aspects at the moment. That, that was, for me, and again, just being a bit confused as to why this they were going for this particular approach when you know the number of universities is is comparatively small they've got some really interesting sort of coverage so what were they try, what are they trying to really get out of this was the question that i was sort of left musing over and Alex, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because, you know, in theory, you have a big body like this as a kind of buffer between ministers and education so that ministers can exercise a little less kind of, you know, direct control on the, on the levers. But, you know, as DK points out on the site this week, there's actually loads of bits of this where ministers could, you know, press the buttons and, and pull the levers more directly. Um, and, you know, that, that, you know, that, that, that those, those are not necessarily powers that Kirsty Williams might use, but, you know, she's not going to be around forever. Uh, yeah, sorry, I was just uh, cancelling my my holiday after DK said that non Welsh <laughs> people um, could could submit a, a response to the consultation. Um, it's not like you were having a holiday anyway, was it, Alex? Uh, no, no, no. I don't, <laughs> what I, is this I, holiday I, you've got booked, Alex? <laughs> I'm, I'm not telling you, but I definitely am. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of I, I miss Hefke, I have to say, um, and and one of the reasons 
I, I miss Hefke because of it, th- their kind of regional representatives who tended to be actually quite sensible, um, well-informed, useful, proactive individuals that would get in touch with universities and discuss things. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, it was a much more kind of in-partnership model. Um, apparently, the OFS are going to do this. Um, I have no idea whether that's actually happened yet or it's going to happen. It's one of those things that's been sort of pandemicked. Um with regards to this kind of overarching regulator, it's it's an entirely different context um, to that uh, in in England. I, I I think I think I was heartened as well to see some mention of the civic in there because I know that the Welsh yeah. government have been very enthusiastic about. It's actually on the face of the bill, which is really quite exciting. There's not yeah. actually very many um, provisions that link directly to what they're going to do about uh, civic, but it is nice to have it up there. See, I don't I don't have a problem with that because I think. The civic is so different, dependent on the context that the university is operating, and that's the historical context, that's the geographical context, that's the kind of um, the economic context that, that each individual institution operates within. I, I'm actually quite relaxed about them not going into exactly um, what kind of detail. I mean, the worst thing that they could do is to have some sort of civic excellence framework, um, <laughs> which which would be a, a nightmare because you know what works for the University of Nottingham doesn't necessarily work for Goldsmiths, doesn't necessarily work for Cardiff or Aberystwyth. I mean, they could use benchmarking groups and they could call it the KEF. Yeah, they they, they could do that. Um, And (laughs) and, um, recognition by the regulator that the civic is an important agenda and is a way that universities contribute um, is is good. And I I, I actually would hope that um, that might be something that other... um, parts of uh, the UK try to emulate. Good. Now, some immigration news this week, and Debbie has the details. This week, we got some updated information on how immigration will work once the UK has left the EU. The government confirmed plans for the new global talent route, which will fast-track highly skilled workers, including researchers and scientists, in the immigration system and allow them to come to the UK without a job offer. There's a new guide for EU students hoping to study in the UK from 2021. Under the points-based system, students will be awarded 50 points for having an offer from a sponsoring institution, a further 10 points for meeting financial requirements, and a final 10 for meeting an English language requirement. Given that all the requirements add up to 70 points in total, which is the minimum required for a visa, and there's no option to find extra credit, assigning points seems a bit, well, pointless. But it's probably important to government that all the bits of the immigration system look similar to each other. EU students will also have to pay for a visa application and uh, take on the NHS surcharge, which comes with a 25% student discount. Graduates will be able to apply for a visa to stay in the UK and look for work for two years following completion of their study, or for three years for PhDs. For skilled workers coming to the UK, they must have a job offer at the appropriate skills level and speak English, all of which bags you 50 points. After that, you can accumulate the remaining 20 points needed by having one or more of a job offer at a higher salary, in a shortage occupation, or by having a PhD in a subject relevant to the job. Gallingly for researchers in social sciences and humanities disciplines, having a PhD in those disciplines only nets you 10 points, while a PhD in a STEM subject gets you 20. Now, next up, Universities Minister Michelle Donnellan has been up in front of the Commons Education Committee this week. Alex, what did she have to say? Yeah, um, Michelle Donnellan, um, who, of course, uh, is uh, an alumna of the House of Commons Education Committee herself, so um, she should be uh, very uh, accustomed to um, the process, um, spent about 75 minutes yesterday Um I think the phrase grilling is a little bit too far. I think it was a kind of quite nice conversation having watched some of it this morning. Um, yeah. 
yeah. <laughs> Bread warming, I think it was. <laughs> a mild saute of, uh, of, of, a, of a kind of inquiry uh, discussion. Um, I think, I mean, it's always quite hard with Michelle Donnellan's speeches at the moment because you sort of, you get a you get a surprise, but it's not the surprise that you expected. Um, I think the biggest one um, from from my perspective was again the kind of thr- the, the the ripping up of um, a, a decade's worth of widening participation um, policy. But I don't know if that was on purpose or not. Um, so I think the kind of the quote that I was most interested in was 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 actually it's whether your advantage or disadvantage. Higher education is not necessarily the best route to go to, uh, get to where you want to go in life, and therefore that didn't really mean um, from her perspective. She said, I, th- "I really think we need to move away from the focus of how many students get to university." So. All of a sudden, I think she's trying to sort of say, well, it doesn't really matter which groups go to university, which disadvantaged groups go to university. Actually, it's about what happens when students are there. So the value add is very much being focused at the time spent at university, um, which, I, which, which, which is a little bit of a contradiction when she also then mentioned um, you know, the number of, of white working class students that struggle to get into higher education. But it seems consistent with this wider um, agenda set out by Gavin Williamson uh, and, and Michelle Donnellan um, over the last couple of weeks about a kind of renewed focus on FE, which of course has been driven by Alison Wolfe in number 10, I'm sure. Um, and I, I think it was um, you know, an interesting kind of articulation of that argument. Um, what that means for how universities construct their access agreements, um, we shall see. Um, but certainly it's a useful kind of canary in the mind moment in terms of many people working in WP. Um, the other thing um, that I think she sort of talked about was um, the modularization uh, agenda where they're trying to encourage um, more kind of modular learning and part-time. Um, whether there's any detail on that coming out, um, we shall be um, uh, we shall see. Um, but uh, I think we've been waiting for for some sort of action on part-time learning um, and our education um, for uh, many decades. But I know that people in and around um, the government are determined to try and sort that out. Um, I, I finally think she, she talked a little bit about some of the challenges um, that universities and students are going to be facing uh, in terms of coming back onto uh, campus and the student experience. Um, I, I don't think there are any surprises there. Uh, she referenced the, the guidance that was um, published um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think recognising the fact that they can't legislate for everything and they can't provide universities with the guidance. They've tried to take what I think is a relatively pragmatic approach, to be honest, in terms of giving us guidance where we need it. For example, you know, what is the definition of a household in a hall of residence, for example? Um, and, and the universities are going to have to um, pick that up and articulate it um, based on, on, on what they think they can do and all of the idiosyncrasies that, that, that we have within our institutions. Good. Francis, any surprises for you in there? No surprises as such. I just think it's this this constant refrain, which about um, questioning the issues of social mobility. When and it just seems 
that all the time it's about producing oven-ready chickens, so to speak, to graduate and go out and work in um, for, for industry. It for me, it fails to really understand the fact that to, you know. If, I think the World Economic Forum has said, you know, if you're at primary school now, by the time you get to a job, 65% of those jobs haven't been created at the moment. You know, there's that sort of sense of in this sort of post-COVID world. I completely agree. We need to have much better access to adult education. You know, that whole lifelong learning skills agenda, which in a way comes back to that Pearson and Wonky report in the first place saying students were expecting the fact that they will be wanting to engage with lifelong learning um, throughout their lives. There is obviously a real need, but it fails to recognise the sorts of unpicking that has been going on by successive governments in that whole adult education FE sphere. I think the other thing for me that I find disappointing at the moment is that it's almost as though FE and HE are mutually exclusive. And, and it's that really what um, we're really interested in at Goldsmiths and with Lewisham and so on, where again, you've got a a sort of one of the 31st poorest borough in in England where we're talking about what is our skills ladder how can we ensure that we're really working closely together to to support learners um, and to really focus on the economic social and cultural needs um, of an area I, I think within all of this sort of debate about leveling up what we need to to focus on we've got to be careful there isn't a sort of leveling down that's going on at the same time it really is long-term planning I think it comes back to Alex's point about that whole civic agreement. This is where regionally we've got to really focus hard as anchor institutions to make the case that we all have a role to play within social mobility and, and an excellent student experience wherever that student experience is, is being um, sort of targeted at. DK, the, 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 the obvious in theory problem with what uh, Michelle was saying uh, yesterday and and to some extent what what she was saying last week um is this is this you know riffing off the headline grabbing dropping of the 50% target this idea that we shouldn't have targets and that and that i mean if we don't have targets at all that's going to be what on earth does chris mill would do at rfs in the future um yeah, I, I, I don't think she was suggesting that we get rid of targets i don't think she was tearing up the idea of widening participation uh, targets. The thing that the thing I find with with listening to Michelle speak, and we've done a lot of this during the uh, lockdown, I think, to the extent I have come to know the wall that she stands in front of um, rather well. And it's actually got quite a nice personality if you get to know it. But um, it's she is her background is in PR. She, she used to do PR for the World Wrestling Federation, of all things. And she is doing a PR job here. She has got the line she needs to get across, and she gets them across. She sometimes mangles them a little bit, like the uh, the reference to New Labour. Yeah, indeed, so, as we all do. I mean, like the reference to New Labour in uh, the last speech, and some of the little bits here that just seemed a little bit off in that she's extemporizing around a theme. But I didn't really think there was anything new in this. The idea of getting rid of targets when you've got a body like the OFS, which is is built around the idea of targets. It reports on everything, it collects everything, it's got a little dashboard sitting in Michael Barber's office. Um, <laughs> and even though we are going to be bidding a very fond farewell to Michael Barber, um, I I don't think that apparatus is going to change unless DFE are going to tear the whole thing up uh, and uh, delight Alex and actually build a new regulator. I I just can't see this happening. Um, a lot of 
the lines in this to the education committee it just looks a bit like a combination of a selection box of the best of what she's said so far and a little bit of extemporization some bits haven't quite worked now it was nssmas day this week and to deck the halls with bows of data here's our correlation correspondent david kernahan so welcome to yes but does it correlate the podcast segment that it's in the middle of july and i can't be bothered writing this bit uh, so I did the really obvious thing that you'd think to do with the NSS data. I plotted the the overall satisfaction agree percentage for 2020 against the same value for 2019 on the same graph. Um, and then I plotted all of the institutions of little dots in the middle. And what I'm wondering if you can guess is if there is a correlation between the two. Shall I? Is there a correlation? Yes, I'm guessing that there is. This is the this is the kind of thing that I pay Wonky to tell me. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> I would agree with that one definitely. In terms of, I mean, in pretty much this entire podcast, you know, this is this is the reason that I I, I was so keen that Mark did the daily, um, so um, so that I wouldn't have to to, to, to do all of this underlying work. Um, so I'm I'm delighted that DK has done this correlation. Um, so 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 I think I think. Does it correlate, DK? Does it actually correlate? You did very well at getting out of answering the question there. I think there's possibly a cabinet-level post for you in the future. That's all right. Um, But it actually doesn't, and that really surprised me, because I thought, you know, obviously, if the NSS actually measures anything at all, that it's going to be pretty stable year on year. That, that you'd think if students are annoyed by the speed of the the, uh, the return of their marked work one year, they probably would be the next year as well, unless something's changed really, really quickly. But not the case. R squared is 0.24, which is a very weak correlation. And even if you take out all of the smaller institutions, the FE colleges, the alternative providers, the smaller specialists, you still can't get R squared above 60. Uh, sorry, not point six. So it just it correlates really, really badly. So comparing results year on year is perhaps not as useful as we think it might be. Now, uh, so that was the regular show. And just like last week, uh, this week, again, a whole bunch of things emerged on Thursday lunchtime. The first of which, the big headline really, uh, was the government's uh, restructuring regime for higher education providers in England. So, DK, just take us through some headlines here. So, originally at the start of this year, we would have thought there would be no circumstances whatsoever in which uh, the government or the OFS or anybody would step in to bail out a failing institution. But as usual, reality has stepped into the frame and we understand that quite a lot of institutions, depending on which particular projections you look at, there could be anything around 13, are are looking to be in danger of not surviving through the next year. And the OFS why did I say OFS? And uh, DFE have uh, decided that they might like to bail a few of those out. There's a lot of conditions and they're very carefully drawn, not just to um, support the institutions that uh, the DFE think are appropriate and important now, but also to kind of shape institutions to be more like what the DFE are looking for more generally. 
there's loads of stuff that pretty much goes along with the kind of speeches that we've been hearing from Michelle Donnellan and Gavin Williamson, uh, that the idea of appropriately high-quality courses that are meeting our local needs and giving graduates the skills they need to succeed. There's stuff about um, internationally excellent or locally and regionally relevant research and there's stuff about sustainability, all of which you'd kind of think would be the kind of thing you'd look at. But there's also the weird ideological things. Uh, uh, free speech is back. Um, giving students unions uh, funding to campaign about stuff. I know a particular favourite aspect of this of yours, Jim, has turned up pretty much out of nowhere. And of course, uh, senior staff pay and spending too much money on admin, which sounds like the kind of thing that the Coalition for the Defence of British University would be campaigning about rather than DfE. It's all very, very odd. I mean, what do you make of all this, Jim? Well, I, mean, I think it is extraordinary because, um, I mean, in some ways, it doesn't fit any of the sort of patterns that we've been asked to accept over years around, you know, focusing on outcomes rather than how people provide things um, uh, and so on and so on. But then in other ways, I think what this, you know, there's a couple of things going on here. I think one of them is, you know, shot through this document, like Blackpool through a stick of rock, is this sense that we can't ask OFS to do this, so we're going to do it. You know, and, and that is really difficult. You know, you've got this regulator that's also a funder. And now you've got uh, this funder that will fund on the basis of effectively some regulation around, you know, specifying what universities are, are and aren't allowed to do in exchange for a loan or a bailout. So that's weird. And then I think the other thing that's weird is this kind of shopping list of uh, lines from speeches. And, and, I, and I think what we don't know is whether all of that is kind of real and and is and will manifest itself more deeply in the response to auger later or whether this is very temporary just chuck some lines in there so it plays well in the press and make sure that this is you know is tied to uh, any bailout and and I get you know I guess the example is uh, this is a document that at one point suggests that for a plan to be credible from a university in order to get access to this funding it would have to have reflected on how much money it gives the student union that the student union then spends on sabbatical officers now, <laughs> students union sabbatical officers get paid about 20k each, and there's about four or five of them in most higher education institutions. You know, three in some places, two in others. This is not a lot of money in the grand scheme of financial collapse of a university. You know, most subs are paid less than one year's worth of international student fees. So, you know, the, the really interesting question, I think, is, as I say, whether or not there's a bunch of clues in here for what might end up being an approach to regulation and funding in the autumn, or whether we just kind of are where we are and you have to put some lines in in order to justify, um, you know, a, a kind of settlement. Because in practical, in a practical sense, this is this is going to apply to very, very few providers. We mentioned the 13 earlier, but uh, to be going to this, you would have to have failed to raise money from your regular lender. And it's quite difficult as a university at the moment not to have access to uh, being able uh, uh, to borrow money. If you've not been able to do that and you've also not been able to borrow money of the, the government in stuff like CL bills or um, the uh, commercial uh, paper purchases off the Bank of England, I mean, any institution that can't do either of those things is probably not, not even uh, going to be able to be bailed out in any other way. 
So the chances are... Yeah, it's a really are, narrow group yeah, of institutions, this, isn't it? Incredibly yeah, yeah. narrow. And I kind of almost read it as um, a signaling. There's a little line in there that, um, I mean, Michelle Donnellan agrees. I think it's Michelle Donnellan. Uh, agrees that this isn't actually going to apply to many universities, but that the DfE recognises other universities will be planning on reshaping themselves as a result of the pandemic. And oh, I think, yeah, that's right. They're advised yeah. to, uh, you know, basically yeah. do everything in the document, even if they're not asking for money. To take these things into account. And I think that's actually the real message of the document. It's not about what they're going to do to bail universities out. Because at the end of the day, they're either going to bail a provider out or not. And um, nothing that the provider says about asking uh, uh, Toby Young and Amber Brad to come and speak on campus is going to make the blindest bit of difference. The decision pretty much has already been made when they look at the name of the provider on the email that comes in uh, to the DFA Batcave. Yeah, exactly. On the map as well and what kind of people go there. But I think it is a message and I think we're right to be looking at the response to Orga and the stuff around the spending review and any other little bits and pieces of policy that are coming the way. This is a, a marker. This is a line in the sand and um, HEB she providers are being dared to cross it. I mean, if nothing else, because there's a whole bunch of text in there about um, VC pay, if you, if you add that into Michelle Donnellan's comments earlier in the week to the Commons Education Committee about, you know, hoping that cuts in v- temporary COVID cuts in VC pay continue, <laughs> basically to access this, a VC would have to be thinking, yeah, I'm going to make my pay cut permanent. So that is, that's your number one incentive for going nowhere near this if you can avoid it. <laughs> well, I mean... The other aspect of that is that senior staff pay, VC pay, is a tiny, tiny amount of the spend. The vast majority of any institution's cost is going to be academic staff costs. And if you're going to offer a quality student experience, if you're going to offer meaningful courses, you're going to need to um, employ some academic staff to teach them. And I mean, that is the cost. That is what is being bailed out. And all of the little... uh, um, fripperies around the side about oh spending too much on administration well why exactly did the dfe think that universities are spending so much on administration it's because there's a lot of administration that needs doing they're not just doing it for fun yeah, yeah. you know yeah now the, the other thing that happened uh and and this is i mean it, this didn't literally happen on thursday so as people will listen to this we you know we always publish the podcast on a friday morning and so we at least got a press release for this early uh ofs separately revealed details of a thing that it did warn us about although no one's really noticed because it's it's it is a very particular type of intervention around market exit um, and DK, I'm so far down the rabbit hole on this, having spent you know, much of the afternoon looking at it and, and tr- also trying to do a bit of childcare, that I can't possibly summarise it in three or four sentences. So be my guest. Well, let's have a go, shall we? There's already a thing called a student protection plan, wherein where a, a provider is looking on the dicey side of financial stability, there is a plan in place that means that students are going to get what they were promised one way or another, be that teach out, be that takeover, be that something else. Now, this is all well and not quite good, but at least a thing. But it's it's become apparent that the process for modifying these and updating these is incredibly complex. And it's a big set of negotiation between the regulator and the provider to get something that looks like a practical plan if circumstances change, like if there's a major major, uh, pandemic. 
to the OFS, a big stumbling block in this is that these plans have to be published. And if a plan suddenly gets changed, the chances are somebody will spot it and the stories will start going round about a university dying off, which will spook the market, as it were. So, so they've uh, come up with these other things. The student protection uh, direction uh, might mean that the OFS will quietly speak to a provider and say, look, we'd like you to build something called a market exit plan. This market exit plan got broad to the same kind of things as you'd see in the protection plan, the idea to teach out, the idea of completing the courses of study, achieving qualifications, or transferring somewhere else or doing it, getting the appropriate advice and guidance, getting exit award, getting refunds, making complaints reasonably. Same kind of stuff as you would see, but it is not public, it is private. So if the OFS thinks there's really a problem, rather than uh, going through the student protection plans thing and being all... Uh, transparent, for the want of a better word about it, it could just do it sneakily behind its hand and uh, get something sorted out that will support students without spooking the market. Is that about it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, technically, OFS says, you know, it's consulting on whether or not this separate type of plan uh, mm. could be kept confidential. But I mean, I think that's a way of saying. <laughs> yeah, I think you have until the 11th of September, which yeah. is round about the time people are going to start thinking about using these. Yeah, and, and look, I mean, you know, there are three really big things for me that come out of it. One is, look, when OFS, when the OFS register launched, there were these funny little social media graphics. And, you know, the message to students was, if if if, you're, if the provider you're thinking of going to is on the register, you can be assured that we've checked it out and it's definitely legit and all good. Or, you know, words to that effect. Here, what OFS seems to be saying is that a provider can be really, really close to going bankrupt. But... It'll keep it on the register. And I can't reconcile that. Either the position is you let people on the register who are viable and financially sound, or uh, and, and, and you don't let them on and throw them off if they're not. Or the position is, well, we might throw them off, but before we throw them off, we'll do these other... Like, <laughs> which is it? So It's a little bit suspicious. I would agree with you. I mean, this applies to all registered providers except for further education uh, colleges who have got their own deal. And... Um, all of these registered, uh, uh, all of these registered bodies, because the register's only been exi- in existence for a couple of years, they would have had their finances success. They would have been sustainable, I think it is, for five years, and they would have been viable for three years, which meant that they would have to have a pretty solid financial backing even to get on the register in the first place. So the fact that this is now becoming a thing undermines the OFS's credibility for assessing that kind of risk and doing the whole risk-based regulations thing. They don't necessarily know if providers that they're admitting onto the register are going to be financially sustainable or not. And this is not the kind of uh, gradual and stately descent through the operation of market forces and students no longer being interested in their courses. This is a direct and present uh, danger from something that, you know, it's a global pandemic. It's not really universities' uh, fault. But the Office for Students' uh, um, on ongoing registration monitoring is clearly not up to the job of picking this up. If the Office for Students does not know, if like the rest of us, it is mucking around with Easter data, trying to get to the providers that the IFS got to, then we've got a really a, a really serious problem in um, in data um, in uh, data led risk based regulation. I yeah, say. I mean, I mean, part of it, you know, part of my question is how does OFS know if a provider doesn't fess up? And I can see a, do you know what I mean? When, in a rapidly escalating scenario, I can see a provider not, you know, reporting the event and so on. There's part of me that thinks if they're properly in 
freefall, a, pro- a provider, then <clears throat> no matter how many of these protection bits that you put in, you know, the student is pretty stuffed. And and if, and you know, if, if the, oh, well, well, you know, teach out, oh, yeah, you'll be able to transfer to another provider. Not if the provider just collapses and you can only go to your local provider. So, you know, there are some... There are some top line basics about student protection that don't work, you know, however much you direct which regime is there. But the other one that I think is interesting, and this is what ties together the DfE thing and the OFS thing. I don't think the biggest risk to students in September, October, November and December and the next academic year generally is provider collapse because... You know, we're only talking about a very small number of providers and a hell of a lot of providers, as we say, are going to do everything they can to avoid collapse. Now, what does everything we can to avoid collapse look like? It, it looks like laying off staff, sticking up the cost of halls, in, you know, renting halls, sticking up the cost of photocopies, you know, converting 24-hour libraries to 12-hour libraries. You cut your costs, don't you? And, and you know, what I think is interesting about this, Megan Brown on the site a couple of weeks ago wrote a fascinating piece for us, which is the sort of, you know, the, the, the trigger broom theory of you know if you make too many changes to a course it ceases to be the course that you signed up to how many of these cuts will a provider you know be encouraged to make by these regimes in order to survive and 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 you end up in a position where this isn't the course that was sold and we know that students aren't going to be able to get you know proper redress for you know an experience that's radically different but practically we're talking about the cessation of their course because if the course or the university is totally different to the one you signed up to there's not really a lot you can do about it i think that's the biggest risk and i can't see anything in either of these interventions from you know ministers or the regulator that goes near tackling that no i would i would as you would love to hear me say entirely agree with that i mean uh students have a a right to do the course that they've signed up to do and neither of these interventions actually maintain or protect that right i think the uh, dfe document um i mean uses uh language like an equivalent uh, course so the idea is students will be okay if they signed up to do a course the provider collapses and they go off and do something a bit like it in a place that's a bit similar that's not the course they signed up for and they have um, a competition and market style um, redress to that under contract law, uh, under contract law, uh, and they would also be able to contact the office for the independent adjudicator. Quite what either of those things could do in that situation, apart from demand that the student gets a full refund. I'm not entirely sure. So what happens next, DK? Is this really now a bit of a kind of nail biter in the in the because you know I mean to the extent to which there are some providers that must have phoned OFS with a reportable event and said look we're gonna, you know we're we're pretty tight for cash we're not they're not going to tell us so you know this is pretty much a nail biter isn't it in the run up to September in terms of how people do in clearing and then whether you know whether people are allowed into the country and whether there's a, whether there's deferral this is all this is a, this is going to be a long summer that's the thing <laughs> it's going to be an even longer summer than you make out there because the crunch point of course is not September uh because any students that are recruited by a provider in September they get twice the money than they normally would the problem with they're that getting is taken off them if, they get taken them off them. Out, yeah. yeah, and they also do not get the usual payment in uh, February 2021. They have to get right the way through. It's like your pay packet after Christmas, you know, when you're really poor and you've got no way of doing that. They're, all providers are going to be in that situation. And the ones that are struggling, if they're going to collapse, it's going to be in uh, February um, or in March, which means there is no need to rush into this. There is no need to go... Uh, chucking in 
uh, strange little bailout uh, um, kind of regimes you've made up on the back of a fag packet. And there is no need to start writing new conditions and registration and consulting them as fast as you can. The problem, we will know which providers are at risk. And if the OFS is even a quarter as good as it likes to claim it is, the OFS will know in September and it will start gradually putting plans in place before February or March. And that's what's going to happen. And we need to think about this rationally and calmly. And we need to make the choices that are best for the students that are on these courses that are at risk. We do not want to be charging in thinking this is a panic because we just need to get it right. And we put the time and the space to get it right. So I can't understand why we're not. So that's about it for this academic year. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. Don't forget you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think we've got what it takes to be a guest on the show, do drop us an email on team.wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks again to our guests, Francis, Alex and DK, everyone at Team Wonky for making the show happen all year and of course to you for listening. Until September... Stay wonky. decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy mail checks invoices legal documents and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.